This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Starting Sunday night, PBS is going to air the latest in what is an excellent series of documentaries by Ken Burns. The one starting Sunday will be on Prohibition, a look at America's great social experiment involved in the banning of alcoholic beverages. It was, as most of you know, not a success. We think this promises to be a barn burner of a good show. And therefore, we're delighted to be able to bring to you, dear listener, one of the people who will be contributing in a big way to that documentary. We're talking about historian Daniel Okrent, whose book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, was a New York Times bestseller last year. If you've watched some of Ken Burns' documentaries, and I certainly hope you have, dear listener, you've seen uh, Mr. Okrent appear prominently in both the series on the Civil War and again on baseball. Last Call is an excellent read, and we're pleased to be able to speak with Mr. Okren about it in our second segment today. In fact, if you're in a car, you may want to plan where you're going to be about 20 minutes from now so you can hear this one. Of course, we hasten to remind you that all of our programs, dating back to, I don't know, the last at least five years' worth, are available on the web at our website, radioparallax.com. And, of course, this one will be, too. Let us begin today's program, as we always like to do, with... On this date in history, the date in question is the 29th of September. It was on September 29th in the year 48 B.C. that a Greek fleet of some 370 triremes savages and scatters a much larger Persian fleet in the Battle of Salamis, the first major naval battle of recorded history. The victory turned the tide against the Persian king Xerxes' attempted invasion of Greece. On this date in 1913, Rudolf Diesel, the German inventor of the engine that bears his name, leapt to his death from a ship in the English Channel. He was only 55. Radio Parallax has no information on whether he contemplated what his motors would do to the air quality of civilization. Because, man, they do stink, don't they? And I hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, did not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California none of whom, I hope, drive those Mercedes diesels. September 29th in 1918 marked a bad day for the German efforts efforts in World War I. Its ally Bulgaria dropped out of the war, and its Turkish allies sued for peace. Also, British troops broke through the Hindenburg Line and took 22,000 prisoners. General Erich von Ludendorff urged his superiors to negotiate an armistice. And finally, on September 29th in 1932, the illustrious American film actress Catherine Hepburn, then age 24, made her film debut in A Bill of Divorcement. And although Radio Parallax cannot be sure, we suspect this was the performance by Kate Hepburn that inspired Dorothy Parker to say, quote, Catherine Hepburn delivered a striking performance that ran the gamut of emotions from A to B. Well, I bet you I'm gonna Our quote and quip of the day today comes from Andy Rooney, who we understand is going to be stepping down this Sunday 
from making regular appearances on 60 Minutes. Andy is 92, after all. We do hope he'll still be an occasional contributor. But at any rate, Andy Rooney, to quote, once said, happiness depends more on how life strikes you than on what happens, which we think is pretty good. We like his quip just as much, which is, if dogs could talk, it would take a lot of the fun out of owning one. Our joke, or actually more, I guess you'd say, humor for the day, comes from Dave Barry, a columnist even funnier than Andy Rooney. Said Dave, recently at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, I noticed that a Starbucks competitor was also using tall for small and grande for medium. It was calling its large cup size, get ready, grande supremo. Yes, and as I watched in horror, many customers, seemingly intelligent, briefcase-toting adults, actually use this term as in, I'll take a grande supremo. Listen, people, you should never, ever have to utter the words grande supremo unless you are addressing a tribal warlord who is holding you captive and threatening to burn you at the stake. Just say you want a large coffee, people. Because if you let the coffee people get away with this, they're not going to stop. And someday, just to get a lousy cup of coffee, you'll hear yourself saying, I'll have a Meggy Grandissimaxo Giganto de Humongo Ramalama Ding Dong Decaf. And when that happens, people, the terrorists will have won. Our stats today, and we have three are as follows. Number one, Social Security provides 41% of the total income of 55 million retired Americans. Ouch. Number two, China is building the world's largest airport outside Beijing at 21 square miles. It will be roughly the size of the island of Bermuda and will handle 200 million passengers a year. Which brings up number three. The newest contender for the world's tallest building, the Kingdom Tower in Saudi Arabia, will be over 3,280 feet tall when completed in 2016. That's 563 feet taller than the current record holder in Dubai and almost twice the height of the Freedom Tower now under construction in New York City. And let's move Mr. McMillan into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week this week for typos. After Bar 3 Barbecue, a small restaurant chain in Montana, sued a local phone book for mistakenly listing it in the category animal carcass removal. The restaurant's owner said the listing led to prank phone calls, mockery, and a decline in business. It was, on the other hand, the week before that, a bad week for outsourcing, after Iranian publishers discovered that thousands of cut-rate Korans imported from China were littered with spelling mistakes. The Islamic Republic is now considering banning Muslim holy books printed in China. And it was considered an ugly week last week for dining in Paris and Rome, after the European Union allocated $4.2 million to promote and research the eating of insects as a cheap low-fat protein source. Said research team leader Professor Marcel Dike, I think it will start with ground-up insects in sauces and burgers. By 2020, you'll be buying insects in supermarkets. Actually, once you get over the factor, we think this is probably a pretty good idea.
And uh, we're almost certain the regents are going to back us up on that one. And finally, it was both a bad and ugly week for the Miss Universe contest last week after officials warned Miss Columbia, Catalina Robayo, to stop wearing tiny skirts with nothing on underneath because of what audiences and photographers were seeing. All right, from the viewer mail section, we want to thank all of you, and there were several who sent us this study on neutrinos, which some say may be disputing Albert Einstein's contention that the speed of light is the fastest anything can move in this universe of ours. Apparently, some recent research showed that neutrinos, those ghostly low-mass particles that uh, blast through our body by the trillions every day, were arriving a little bit sooner than they're supposed to be, according to the universe's speed limit. So before we get too wrapped up in the idea that these neutrinos may be, uh, you know, taking extra dimensions to move through space, let's, let's look at the data again. A whole chorus of physicists have ridden up, risen up to say it's, it's too early to give up on Einstein and we're betting on Albert. And yes, we want to know we're as excited as you are, dear listener, to see this news about uh, the planet dubbed HD85512b, which frankly cries out for a new name. Turning out to be one of the most Earth-like places, uh, at least in terms of being in the right spot and being about the right size, in the so-called Goldilocks zone around a, uh, a nearby star. This whole thing still involves a lot of guesswork because we don't have any telescopes that are uh, accurate enough to actually take a sampling of the atmosphere of a planet orbiting another star. Such instruments are in the works, however, if we can just uh, see them built and launched. And some... Uh, not so good news from something that's already been built and launched and has been, to date, spectacularly successful, which is to say the Kepler mission. NASA's Kepler is working on its second set of 1,000 planets found orbiting nearby stars. But unfortunately, the project's managers have become a little bit concerned about the fact that uh, Kepler's top priority, which is finding Earth-sized worlds in a wide, temperate orbit, cannot be achieved by the time the spacecraft completes its planned three-and-a-half-year mission, which is in November 2012. By last February, Kepler had found 1,235 candidates, but only 68 were Earth-sized, which is a tally far short of the anticipated windfall. Here's the reason. Our local neighborhood star, the Sun, only varies in brightness by about 10 parts per million. If you're way out in deep space waiting for the Earth to pass in front of the Sun you would see a dimming of about 100 parts per million, which, if you were using the Kepler spacecraft way out there in deep space, would allow you to determine that, yes, Earth orbited the Sun. Unfortunately, other stars are more variable than our trusty local one. So this is causing problems with the statistics. If you're out there, say, 100 light years from Earth and noticed a slight dimming of our Sun three times in the course of three years, which is what you'd see, it might prove to be tough to pick out of the data. So they're saying that to really get more accurate information, we need to extend Kepler's mission to at least seven or eight years' worth of observations. Here's the part that makes me sick. The, the total cost of this mission is $600 million. To extend the mission out a few years, it would take about an extra $17 million per year. From our back-of-the-envelope math, we'd say this works out to about an hour's worth of Iraq and Afghanistan war effort. In fact, something like 15 or 20 minutes worth. We hope the funds will be found. 
And closer to home in things planetary, it turns out that Pluto has got at least four moons. Pluto's newest satellite was discovered this, su- this summer and is believed to only measure about nine miles across. This is all going to make Pluto a more interesting place to visit when the New Horizons spacecraft arises in 2015. And although NASA uh, seems to be in a lot of financial trouble, the Russians are making plans for a $115,000 per night space hotel. Apparently a Russian company, Orbital Technologies, wants to put you 217 miles above the Earth by 2016. This proposed commercial space station would house seven guests in four cabins and offer what is described as such space luxuries as pre-cooked gourmet meals, sealed showers as opposed to sponge baths, and spectacular views of the home planet which apparently would be of insufficient interest to someone uh, initialed M.O. writing in Pakistan's The Nation, who felt that if you're lucky enough to make this trip, well, you should know that aside from the spectacular view, there's not much else to do, so you'd be wise to take a good book. Mr. McMillan, we may have to bring back the Jackass of the Week segment we've sort of left, uh, left by the boards. Because anyone who would go 200 miles up, spend $100,000 a night, and then go in his cabin and read a book, well, I don't know, just fill in your own insult here. All right, and although we have to admit that we had a great time talking about Hawaii on last week's program, things didn't go so well for UC Davis on its visit to Honolulu to play the the University of Hawaii Warriors. The Warriors won that game 56-14. The score at halftime was 49-0. We've always had a few doubts in this program about UCD and other schools moving up to Division I. And sometime next month, we will probably go over the article that was in the Atlantic, October issue, titled The Shame of College Sports. Talks about uh, uh, what is a gigantic scandal involving uh, the NCAA and college football. Though I had to chuckle about the article in the Sacramento Bee a few months back about Stanford's coach, Jim Harbaugh. Article by Matthew Barrows explained how Harbaugh's first lesson upon arriving at Stanford was how to handle a bully. That time, the biggest, baddest dude in the block was Pete Carroll, the face of the USC Trojans, which had won five straight Pac-10 conference titles. When Harbaugh was hired in 2007, Stanford was 1-11 and the year before. The Stanford Cardinal wound up winning their game 24-23 in Los Angeles and set up a rivalry that lasted several years before Harbaugh moved on. The article pointed out that he raised eyebrows across the country when he called for a two-point conversion with a 48-21 lead. Since it's SC, I do have to laugh, but, you know, it really isn't very sportsmanlike, is it? Anyway, someone who's always a good sport is our pal, Will Durst. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few thoughts concerning President Obama's call to raise taxes on the rich and the predictable Republican response. Class warfare, an oldie but a goodie. And about as unexpected as finding green grapes in a fruit salad. Why is it always a war with these guys? The culture war, war on Christmas. Then they accuse Democrats of being emotionally unequipped to go to war. Well, which is it? When taxes are raised on the rich, oh sure, that's class warfare. But when libraries are closed and national parks left to rot so rich people can have more money, that's trickle-down economics. What Barack should do is rename his efforts to balance the playing field, trickle-up economics. 
That would at least confuse them. Not that they need more confusion. You know what? You're right. It is a class war. You started it, and your side is winning. The Republicans are especially upset about a proposal called the Warren Buffett Rule, which calls for billionaires to pay taxes at the same rate as their secretaries. The GOP puts more faith in the Jimmy Buffett Rule, which holds that anybody who worries about coming up with next month's rent money should start drinking margaritas until they pass out. What is it with the rich? How much money do they need? How many cars can you drive? How many imported beluga caviar cream cheese canapes can you consume at a single cocktail party? The richest 400 families in this country control more wealth than the bottom 150 million people put together. And anytime somebody wearing a watch worth more than a house talks about class warfare, they should have a hose shoved down their throat and goose liver pumped in until they leak from the ears. From the front lines of the class war, hunkered down in my bunker with a view, for Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Good stuff, Mr. Durst. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got a lot of ground to cover in our second segment, so let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Daniel Okren about his excellent book, Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Yeah. 